For the past 22 years, I've walked down the aisle of this chapel, greeted by smiling faces of families and students, eyes full of anticipation. How odd it is to be speaking to you from an empty chapel, yet still eager to see what this unique year holds in store for us, to see how we craft it, to witness how each of us applies our unique creative spirits to navigate this challenge. I believe that faced with struggle, if we each use our innate gifts, our artists within, will guide us to persevere. Now, some things come easy to us. They seem like second nature, a way of looking at the world, a simple way of doing some everyday task, a performance of an action that we do with ease. We don't think about it much because it's so natural. But those things that seem most natural to us, natural to you, that you do with ease and pleasure instinctively, may be the unique gifts that make you, you. And those simple natural things may be where your inner artist waits to be called on and grow. When I was a little girl, I attended a progressive school in New York City. And I was learning how to play the violin, and therefore I was part of the all-school orchestra made up of third to 12th graders. Out of 25 violins, I was the fourth, fourth violin. I would take my violin home every night, and I could practice, and I could hear the squeaks and the squawks, and try as I might, I could not produce those smooth, beautiful, mellifluous sounds as I drew my bow across the strings. I just wasn't very good yet. Now, we were preparing for a concert, and I knew my squeaks and squawks were going to ruin it for everybody. I didn't want to embarrass myself, I didn't want to embarrass my family, and I didn't want to wreck the concert. I really didn't know what to do. And then I got an idea. Now, I don't know where this idea came from, and I didn't tell anyone about it. But come the night of the concert, I was up on the stage holding my violin in perfect form, my bow poised, ready to move across the strings, And lo and behold, no squeaks and squawks. After the concert, my parents congratulated me, but what they didn't know was that as I moved my bow across the violin, it never touched the strings. I think I can trace that back to be the first time I performed as an actor. It was my first real performance. I had a problem I urgently needed to solve. I found a solution. I pretended. It was 1963, and I had never heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. I'm not even sure that it was invented yet. I was also a little girl who had a lot of struggles in school. It was very difficult for me to learn to read. When I saw letters, I couldn't sound out the word because I would see three consonants together and I didn't know how to pronounce it. 
I, I couldn't figure out how to make the sounds. What I didn't know was that I reversed letters and that they would turn upside down and switch places in the words and they just looked like gobbledygook to me. Now, there was not a consensus definition of dyslexia until 1968. The first major research book published on dyslexia wasn't published until 1972, the year I started college. My parents tried to support me, but there just wasn't enough understanding of what I was experiencing to really be supportive. So I retreated into myself. I thought I was just dumb. But when I went to dance class at the 92nd Street Y, I could fly. I was free. My home art studio is where I could express my feelings and connect to my creative self. But I couldn't paint realistically. I was more of a Chagall-style painter, and I compared myself to my classmates, and I found myself lacking. So, in discovering that I could embody my imagination, it opened a door. A door to the theater, a door to performance, to stepping into another person's shoes and seeing the world from their perspective. To a place of collaboration, an experimentation of risk-taking, to a community of like-minded souls with whom to commune and collaborate. Of course, that nine-year-old little dyslexic girl didn't actually realize that that door had opened, but she did notice a shift, a small shift that allowed for new possibilities, and that inspired perseverance. It wasn't a fully conscious moment of enlightenment, but when I look back almost 60 years I can trace that moment with the violin to the beginning of a different way of being in myself. Can you look back to any moments where you experienced a shift, a moment of revelation, an experience that led you down a slightly different path? I think we are all born with different levels of ability to persevere in times of challenge. But I also believe that our life experience can change that strength. If I don't work out, I am not going to build the muscles I need to do the things I would like to do in my life. The kind of workout I choose will target certain abilities, will build certain muscles. Our ability to be self-aware and to persevere are also muscles that we can build. We can choose how we build those muscles. We can be purposeful about it. Now, certainly there are things that are beyond our control, like being in the middle of a pandemic. But how we choose to respond, that we do have a choice in. There have been many moments in my life when things have been thrown at me and I have been knocked down. The hand that reached out to help lift me up sometimes came from very unexpected places. 
If it wasn't for my ninth and 10th grade English teacher, I'm not sure when I actually would have known that my struggle with reading and math, as it turns out, was because of the way my brain interprets letters and numbers. Mr. Moore was very interested in computers, and across the street from our school was a big IBM plant, and they donated a trunk line and a computer setup for him to investigate learning of vocabulary and grammar. Now, Mr. Moore was also a stickler for spelling. So at the end of a rubric for a paper, you would see your grade, and then 10 points deducted for every misspelled word. Most of the time, my 90s and 80s ended up being failing grades, and that was very disheartening. But I became one of the first people he chose to be a test subject for his computer experiments, and he developed a spelling program just for me. Mr. Moore noticed some patterns. All the letters were there, but they were not in the right order, or a B was a P or a D. And that was the beginning of my understanding about my struggle with reading and interpreting symbols. Now, understanding the problem didn't take it away, but it gave me a context for it. And I was able to start to get some tools to cope with it. Now, most of those tools I figured out on my own because there weren't the kind of support structures we have today for kids with dyslexia. I realized no matter how many times I looked up a word in the dictionary, I could not trust that I was seeing it correctly or that I would be able to transfer what I saw onto the page correctly. But I did have a roommate. And I did have classmates in my dorm who could read over my papers and spot mistakes which I couldn't see. When I got to college, I had to summon up the courage to ask new friends if they'd be willing to read over my papers. And that seemed to work. But in 1976, during my first year of teaching at a boarding school outside of Baltimore, I had to write my first set of comments on a form in triplicate. I remember being called into the head of school's office who as kindly as he could explained to me that he could not send my comments home. Not because of the content, but because of the numerous misspellings. I realized I hadn't set up any kind of support system to help me. I explained my situation to him, and we worked together to create a support network. By the time I went to graduate school, I understood what I needed to do in a new community. And then, as luck would have it, I ended up falling in love with a journalist, a writer, an editor, an English teacher, who even though he is now retired from teaching here at Mercersburg, still reads every progress report, every set of comments, and any document I write that anyone else is going to read. And he has done that for 37 years. Over the years, I have come to see my dyslexia as a gift. 
I discovered it was easier to read dialogue than it was to read narrative descriptive passages. I came to this realization about the same time as my violin concert. So I gravitated to activities where I could use my imagination, where reading wasn't going to be such a stumbling block, where all the kids were playing with purpose toward one goal, not in competition with each other, but as a united group. I took classes in modern dance. I was in school plays. I spent summers in camp in the art barn. By high school, I was attending an art summer school and then pre-college theater programs. I didn't know that I was going to be a theater major when I arrived on the bucolic Wisconsin campus of Beloit College, but they did, enrolling me in a freshman theater seminar taught by the department chair. By the summer before my senior year, I was an equity intern at the professional theater company housed on the campus, opening a new theater complex with our town which I play the role of Rebecca, opposite Ray Liotta, who is probably best known for his film, Goodfellas. The rehearsal process I fell in love with is about digging in to understand characters who have needs, who face obstacles and struggle. It's about making a choice and seeing where that choice takes you, assessing and reassessing and making new bold choices and taking a risk and falling on your face, knowing that your creative partners will lend you a hand to stand back up on your feet and do it all over again. Theater makers are researchers, explorers, problem solvers applying new data to the next iteration of the scene. What freedom it is and exhilarating it is to fly in the safety of a creative laboratory. The gift of my dyslexia allowed me to see differently, to feel deeply, and to step into another world with ease to empathize. I learned that I was never going to be able to check off that box that said dyslexia, done, solved. It is something that I continue to learn about, to adjust to, and grow with, as I did in all my rehearsals. I realized that I was never going to finish growing as an artist, as a teacher, or as a human being. When I first came to Mercersburg, the school supported my training in Les Atkinis Sensics, a holistic, comprehensive, and creative approach to all aspects of developing the body and the voice for speaking, singing, and communication. Arthur Lesak, the renowned voice coach and theater professor, became a very important mentor to me. He was 92 years old when I first began studying with him. And any of you who have ever taken a class with me or been in a play with me have been influenced by his philosophy and his kinesensic approach to sensation. 
I would like to end my talk with a quote from him from a documentary that was made about his life when he was 94 years old. Let me add that he lived to the age of 101, teaching and growing until the moment of his death. I quote, After I realized that I was developing something meaningful and worthwhile, I realized that I was in a situation where new beginnings could take place. Sometimes little ones, sometimes insignificant ones, but not to me. That sense of always being ready for a new beginning of something for me, is a kind of lifeline. It's another way of staying young. So let's be ready for all the new beginnings we're about to experience, big ones, little ones, as we face this unprecedented and challenging year, knowing that we can persevere, that the growing artist with in us will be a guide, and that when we fall, there will be a hand reaching out to us to help us get up and start anew. Thank you.